Well, last week in our journey, as we continued through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has told the disciples the signs of the times coming. He saw their distress, and then He begins to shepherd their hearts through that. And He gave them some things to note as they watched the signs unfold for encouragement. And that was our encouragement last week, that the signs of the times are not meant to bring us distress. They're actually meant to cause us to, if you'll remember, um, stay alert, stay calm, stand firm, and share the gospel. That was his whole point in all of that. So we made it through all of that, and this week we're going to begin where we ended last week, that Jesus kind of just continues um, that thought and that theme. And so we make it to Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to read through this. It won't be our focus for the week, but again, I want you to see how 25 ties into 24 and just continues that same theme of things are going to happen. <laughs> this world is going to go nuts, and we need to stand firm, stay alert, stay calm, and continue to share the gospel and all of it. That is Jesus' point in this text. So let's look how this plays out. Matthew chapter 25, we'll pick up again, beginning where we ended last week. And so Jesus says this. He tells some stories. Um, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish ones took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise ones took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So again, be ready and be watching. That's our lot. That's our encouragement in chaos around us. Be watching. No one knows the day or the time. He goes on to give another story. Verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. <clears throat> he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more talents. So also he who had the two talents made two more talents. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made you five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. So, before we keep going, maybe it was a fear of failure and he didn't want um, his master to see him as a failure, or maybe he was just jealous of the person who got the five talents, and so he was like, oh, well, if I've only got one, I'm not going to use that one talent. It doesn't matter. The point is, what he wanted was a relationship without the obligation to do something for the master. Let's continue reading. Verse 26, But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who now has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And watch this. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, the point, be ready and be watching. Be ready and be working is this next thing. In other words, grace doesn't condone irresponsibility is Jesus' point. So when you see all this going on, be watching and be working still more. Again, how we ended last week's message. Let's keep going. So then Jesus talks about the final judgment, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who were blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you also did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you the opposite of the people before? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in other words, be ready and be watching. Be ready and be working. 
And now, one last time, when you see all these things, be ready and be worshiping in all aspects of life, whether it be a Sunday morning or whether it be a Tuesday afternoon, whether it be a Bible study or whether it be a staff meeting, whatever it is, whether you're walking in the grocery store for your own uh, family's needs or whether you see somebody in need and you tend to them, let life be an aspect of worship. All of these things um, are, are things that are, are the signs of the times, right? And things that you should be watching for. So, what do you do with somebody who speaks with that type of authority? Seriously, think about this, okay? Imagine a person comes to you. Imagine the person, if you're in a room with somebody else, look at that other person, okay? Imagine if that person comes to you. And if you're by yourself right now, imagine your best friend, okay? Imagine they come to you, and here's what they say. Um, hey, we need to pray more, and um, you really need to pray more, and we need to um, just love people better, and, and you need to love people better. So they, they talk about that. They talk about aspects like that. How would you respond to that? Okay, It wouldn't really catch you off guard, would it? You, you may get mad or, or you may justify or you may indeed agree with that person and go, yeah, these are aspects that we do need to work on. Let's grow in these aspects together, okay? So imagine that. Now, imagine if that same person that you just thought of doesn't come in and, and talk about uh, uh, study or prayer or loving people better or something like that. Imagine they come in and they say, hey, I'm going to tell you what the signs of the times are. Here's what they are. And I'm going to leave, and I'm, I'm, I'm headed back to heaven, okay? And then I'm, I'm going to come back, and when I come back, I'm going to judge. And I'm going to be the one that judges whether people have done these things properly or not, and I'm going to hand out eternal damnation or eternal righteousness. Then how would you respond? Right? You, you probably would look at that person and call them crazy, nuts. That's the point. That pulls you into this text, right? What do you do, not with a person who suggests that we need to love better or pray better, but what do you do with the person who has the authority to say, this is going to be the end of times and how it's going to play out. And by the way, I'm going to be the one that comes back and judges who's on the right and who's on the left. That is a whole nother level of authority. Even the chief priests and high priests would never have said something like that. This is the Jesus we're talking about. In other words, you, like them, would be caught off guard. And so what would you do that? You really only have two options. Option number one, which you probably just said about that person, you would say they are deranged. Or number two, the other option would be, you would say they're divine, they're right. It's really the only two options. C.S. Lewis actually said it in three ways. He, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord, but in this case, let's just boil it down to two. With this type of authority and these type of things that he just said, either he is deranged or he is divine. Now, Jesus obviously knows that this has upset his disciples and is going to continue to shepherd their hearts even for, further. And so he's going to... Um, He's now going to unpack the responses in a couple of different ways for them. 
And um, so he's going to share a couple of things with them, and he's going to share a couple of things with us. Again, what do you do with this type of authority? How do you respond to it? It's either deranged or he is divine. So, ladies and gentlemen, after one year and five months in the Gospel of Matthew, we finally make it to the Passion Narrative, and the Passion Narrative is about to begin. And that's where we find ourselves today in Matthew 26. So for the rest of our time, we'll spend the focus in 26 verses 1 through, uh, I almost said 14, uh, 1 through 16. So here's where we're at. So what do you do with that type of authority? How do you respond? He's either deranged or he is divine. And so the first thing Jesus is going to show is why a person would say that he's deranged okay, and not divine. And the reason for that is they see Jesus and that type of authority as a threat to their own personal peace. And so the person who sees Jesus as deranged, that's why you can boil it into a nutshell because they see Jesus as a threat to their own personal understanding of peace. Now let's read this together. So when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So again, they are 100% right. Jesus indeed does disrupt everything peaceful about life. He disrupts it. He, especially when we're talking in terms of personal peace or what we understand to make us feel peaceful. Jesus, he disrupts all of this. And so in this passage, we can see a couple of ways that he did it. He disrupted self-centered theology. There indeed is a peace based on works-based religion. A works-based religion gives us peace because we can work so hard and at the end of the day we can beat our chest and say, I'm at peace because I did enough things today. Which is exactly what these chief priests and scribes said, which squarely is what Jesus said, never gets you into the kingdom. So he disrupted their self-centered theology. And so, so much so that now he's got the chief priests, the elders, and the high priest gathering. He has disrupted all of their peace in their self-centered theology. But not only that, Jesus disrupts our self-centered control. Notice where this meeting goes down. It goes down in the palace, right? Okay, This, this goes down in the hub of religion. Okay, And they all had the keys, if you will, to this palace. It was the place of their um, control, right? This, this was a place where, um, I guess I could say it in the way, words of Under Armour. <laughs> they would say, this is my house. And Jesus comes in and not only flips it literally, but he flips it all together. And so they're grasping for the only thing that they had control over. Jesus had disrupted the peace that they thought they had control over the center of religion, the temple, the palace, all these type things. In other words, Jesus is a welcome guest in our lives and he's a welcome guest in our home. 
until he starts tell, walking around telling us that we need to make our bed a certain way. And then all of a sudden, we start grabbing for control. And Jesus disrupts that. And so the person that sees Jesus as, de as deranged is because he messes with that tight peace. And he says, no, 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 if I'm going to be your Lord, you have to let go of the keys and let me drive the car. And not only drive the car, but tell you what color the carpet should be. And not only tell you what color the carpet should be, but tell you what kind of air freshener you need to hang. And not only tell you what kind of air freshener you need to hang, but tell you which lane you need to be driving in and the speed with which you need to be driving and the way that you need to respond to other drivers. You see this? Okay, and so Jesus disrupts personal peace. And when he does that, that's when it causes someone to go, ah, he's a lunatic, right? So he disrupts self-centered theology. He disrupts self-centered control, but he also disrupts self-centered feasts, right? So in this, there is a peace to giddy pleasures. And that is what we see. Notice what the, uh, the chief priests, almost of the Pharisees, the chief priests and all those, they didn't want to do it during the feast because they wanted to enjoy the feast. They didn't want to cause any disruption. The people loved the feast and they wanted the people to be happy. They wanted to keep the what? The peace. And Jesus comes in and he disrupts the peace. Here's the deal. Either Jesus is our chief joy and peace in and of himself, or giddy pleasures of the world also compete for peace. And when that's the case, Jesus is squarely not our peace and joy. It's one or the other. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So in other words, when faced with Christ, He's either deranged or divine, and peace is either found solely in Him or it's found in other things. And you, like me, maybe in this moment thinking, you know what? I feel that tension. I feel the tension of Jesus sometimes squarely is my peace, and then also I get bound up in the world too. And, and as we feel that tension, be reminded of this. There's only one time that this is mentioned, right? With, with a person who's one foot fully in with Christ and one foot fully in the world. One time. And that is the only time in Scripture that we're ever known for Jesus to do what? To vomit. That makes Him vomit, right? Lukewarm Christianity is, is what Revelation says, and that's the accusation against the church at Laodicea. And so he says, this makes me want to vomit. Either I am your peace, or you find your peace in other things. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And so this is a call for us. This is a call for us to think through, what do we do with this type of authority? Is he divine to us, or is he deranged? Do we see him as a personal threat to our peace, or do we see him as our peace in and of himself? It's called to a higher understanding. And Jesus knows this, and so he encourages the disciples with this as this all begins to unfold. And he tells them ahead of time, this is going to happen, right? <laughs> he's, I'm going to be delivered up and, and be crucified. So he knows that there's a bit about to be a disruption to worldly peace. So he wants to encourage them that he is their peace. So when confronted with Jesus, he sees him as, we see him as a threat to peace. Or the other option, if you, if you see him as divine, we see him as worthy of everything that you have.
That's the two options. And so Jesus lets this moment unfold before him. Let's look at this together. So if you see Christ as divine, what does that require? Verse 7, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, okay? This word is they were raging or a fury at the unworthiness of what was going on. They, they couldn't fathom the fact that this was taking place, that this extravagant uh, perfume was being poured out fully, okay? When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Verse 9, For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. <laughs> One quick thing, I can't get past this real quick. It is entirely possible to worship social justice and giving to the poor and not worship the person of Jesus. Entirely possible. Yes, 100%. A heart that's affections are turned to Jesus and He is the chief glory and chief peace and chief pleasure will in turn breed external actions. But it is entirely possible to have external actions and to claim it's gospel-centered and to have zero love and peace in Jesus as your soul satisfaction. Entirely possible. And I think that's a good word in our social justice day and age. So anyways, let's keep going on. He. This false veneer is exposed. You can have a false veneer of outside righteousness and your heart be internally wicked, right? And he goes on to say this, verse 10, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 10, For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Verse 13, And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And just like the chief priests and elders were 100% right, that Jesus is a threat to our personal peace, this woman is also 100% right that Jesus demands everything in worship from your life. Everything that is worshipful, He demands this of us. He, he demands our mind's attention. Everything that we focus on. So in this moment, this woman could have been focusing on many things. She could have been focusing on feasts. She could have been focusing on the people in the other room. But she intentionally and strategically focused on Christ. He had her attention. And so she saw Him as divine. And the one who sees Jesus as divine and has this authority will in turn give Him worship in all things. I would argue that it's not only intentional for us, but it also becomes habitual for us. And if you see Jesus as divine, we grow in the habit of thinking on Him daily more and more and more and more and more. had a conversation with somebody just a couple of weeks ago about this at Cracker Barrel, and he was actually upset that he saw in his life 
that his habits of thinking on Christ had begun to wane. And he was discouraged. And so my encouragement to him was just this, brother, we are sitting here having a conversation about the fact that you feel yourself waning and want to grow still more. What an encouragement. So the habit had exposed itself and he wanted to love him more. And, and I'm able to look at that guy and go, brother, you see Christ as divine and worthy of an intentional worship of life. Be encouraged by that. And that's our call. We should all feel that. And if you are one who go, I've never felt the habit of thinking on Christ throughout the day, I, I really would ask you, do you see Him as divine? This is a divine calling for all of us to be like this woman. And so her mind's attention is focused on Jesus, but then also not only her mind's attention, but her heart's affections are focused on Jesus. Most likely, the most expensive thing that she had, she was willing to pour out over Christ's head. And Jesus demands that our most prized possessions come not second to Him, but second hundredth, I don't know if this is a word, second hundredth to Him. Nothing compares to Him, and that's what He calls us to is to see not only our mind's attention but our heart's affections. So I just really in this time just want to ask some questions. And I've jotted them down. Here are the questions that I think this passage causes us to consider. If we see Him as divine, if you claim to see Jesus as divine, let me ask you this. Would you be willing to move if Jesus told you to move tomorrow? Would you be willing to stay if you're considering moving and Jesus told you to stay? Would you be willing to say sorry to that person if Jesus told you to say sorry? Would you be willing to live in moderation if Jesus told you to live in moderation, that area of your life that you are excess with all the time? If He told you to be in moderation, would you do it? Would you be willing to share your faith if Jesus told you to? Would you be willing to give away all of your savings, all of your savings account, every bit of it, 401k and all, if Jesus told you to do it? Or, let's, let's boil it down, would you just be willing to tithe if Jesus told you to do it? Would you be willing to change those unhealthy habits that you have if Jesus told you to do it? Would you be willing to go on a mission trip if Jesus told you to do it? Would you be willing to stand right now in your room, wherever you are, and begin to testify about the greatness of Jesus if He told you to do it? No matter who's around, would you be willing to do it? Would you be willing to confess your sin right now, out loud, if Jesus told you to do it? Would you be willing to sing aloud? Raise your hands if Jesus told you to do it. Kneel down if Jesus told you to do it. Would you be willing to delete all of your media accounts, social media accounts, if Jesus told you to do it? Would you be willing to forgive that person 
if Jesus told you to do it. And, and I read all these things and I can hear you. Well, Jesus isn't telling me to do any of these things right now, Troy. And I understand. I understand that justification. Jesus isn't telling me to do any of those things right now, Troy. I am scot-free. Well, I have one more question for you. In light of all these things, when is the last time that you sat there or stood there with your hands wide open and said, Jesus, I'm not going to leave this spot until you tell me what you want me to do next. I'm not going anywhere. I'm standing right here, sitting right here, until you speak to me and tell me what you want to do next, and then I will go do it without hesitation. When is the last time Jesus has meant that much to you and His direction has meant that much to you? This lady was willing to pick up her most expensive, valuable jar of ointment and to pour it out over His head. Had to know that everybody in the room was going to look and go, what on earth are you doing? And she didn't care. Jesus, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever. Or, when I ask you all those questions, did something rise up in rage and say, Troy, those questions are too radical? If so, then you might not see Jesus as divine. And if rage is what came in your heart, the passage goes on to illustrate somebody else who had the exact same feeling that you're feeling. So let's continue. Because Jesus is a threat to personal peace. He's absolutely a threat to everything that you have, worthy of all of it. But He's also a threat to personal agendas. Verse 14. Then, after this moment of having to choose between whether he's deranged or divine, then, after all of this, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, and you can feel the rage in his heart, that Jesus would have the audacity to claim that he's worth this, that he's worth all the questions that I just asked you. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? He's disrupting too much peace. He's disrupting too much of my agenda. He's demanding too much worship. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So as we conclude today, do you see Jesus as a threat to your personal peace? Because here's the answer. He is. Question number two, do you see Him as worthy of the totality of your being and everything that you own, have, think, do? He is. Question number three, 
do you see him as the one who has the right to control your personal agenda? He is. And the way that you respond to those will show whether you believe him to be divine or deranged. And perhaps the best way that I think we can end a passage like this in personal contemplation is actually to do what I suggested a minute ago. And so that's what we're going to do even now. What I want you to do is this. Wherever you're at, I just want you to sit there. And I know people are in the room with you. I get it. And I want you to have just an extended time where you just sit there and with hands wide open. Maybe you even want to put palms down expressing, I'll empty anything, Jesus. And just sit there and say this, Jesus, I am not leaving this spot until you tell me what to do next. And then, Lord, I'll do it.